You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. This podcast is sponsored by Receptiva DX. Receptiva DX is a powerful test that can help detect inflammatory conditions on the uterine lining that might be preventing you from becoming pregnant or staying pregnant. If you've experienced implantation failure or multiple miscarriages, ask your doctor about Receptiva DX. Uterine inflammation, if found, can be treated, providing a new pathway to achieving a successful pregnancy. Receptiva DX, because the journey's worth it. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Carrie Bedian at the Fertility Center of Las Vegas here with my two ravenous. I was about to (laughs) say ravishing, and then I got ravenous. I'm starving. Ravenous too. (laughs) So my ravishingly ravenous co-hosts, Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Hello. And Dr. Abby Evelyn from Nashville Fertility Center. Hello. How are you girls doing? We are doing good. Fabulous. Are good. How are you doing more importantly? Do you have some I, sore legs? I cannot. When I'm sitting or when I'm standing, I'm fine. But anytime I move position, my legs are screaming at me. What the hell did you do to us? So for our listeners, Carrie just <laughs> ran a half marathon in Vegas, right? Rock and roll half marathon, Rock and roll. right? Roll. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And you know, um, you know how there's like the couch to 5k program. I kind of did the couch to half marathon program. (laughs) I didn't know there was such a thing, Carrie. Uh, better than I thought it would actually, because I, I mean, I used to run half marathons, not frequently, but like I would do them regularly enough. I mean, I did one when I was, I don't know, 15 weeks pregnant with my youngest. And so like you have running in your past. I have running in my past. Yes. Um, how did you know? So wait a minute. How did you run? I was just telling somebody today that I was a runner much more so than I am now. When I And when I was pregnant at about 15 weeks, I'm like, I'm done. I can't do this anymore because it felt like somebody was just punching into my bladder. So how in the world did you run a half marathon when you were 15 weeks pregnant? I was in really good shape at that point in my life. I'm not quite in that same shape right now. But wow. um, I mean, I I worked out hard until I was about, I don't know, probably 32 weeks or so, at which point my body was just like, nope, you're done. And I wow. immediately copped out of most anything else that was intense at that point. But um, so what but did yeah. you do to train for this one, though? Did you what, like, did you run like, did you like take a two hour run one day or run for an hour? Like no. do any of that kind of stuff? You just no. ran yesterday? You just got out of your Pretty bed much. and ran 13.2 miles? Pretty much. 13.1. Impressive. Like I, I could not do that. So what was your pace? Did you run the whole way? We did. It was, so I'm slow. Even at my peak, I I think the fastest. So one of my favorite marathons was one where it was straight up or half marathons was one where it was straight up and then straight down. Oh my. Um, Cause we we're on a mountain and that one, mm. that one, I think I hit like 10 minutes, 45 seconds to 12 was, was my pace throughout that. Um, in part, because it was so easy coming down this one. So at my best, I'm like 12 ish minutes. Um, this one was probably closer to 15 to 16. And I was with a friend who also didn't train a huge amount, but trained more <laughs> than I did. And so she, she was pacing us. And so we were hitting about 15 minute miles. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we, we would alternate running and walking and we were still 
pretty quick. I mean, when we were we were in the very last wave of people that was released, and so as we were approaching yeah. the uh, the finish line, like there were still several miles of people behind us. Which oh, okay. I saw somebody's shirt that said, "Please, dear God, let there be somebody behind me to read this." <laughs> and I can one hundred percent identify with that. And the nice thing is, though, so the rock and roll is right down the strip at mm-hmm. night. They yeah, shut down the entire strip. It's one of the only times that they do that. And so we went all the way down to the Welcome to Vegas. Vegas sign and then all the way up the strip and then into old downtown Las Vegas and through Fremont Street and then back down to the strip. And it's just, there's lights everywhere. It's really pretty. Everybody's excited. And what's the weather at this time? Um, So the average on the website when I signed up for the marathon said, oh, average of 65 degrees. Last night, it was about 40. Oh, oh wow! Oh. But that's good for running, though. That's good, actually. There were people who were running with their altogethers hanging out, like people in just bras and itty bitty teeny tiny shorts. And I'm like, "That's oh, stupid." Are you not freezing all of your bippies off? Because <laughs> it was. I mean, I was comfortable, but I also had three layers: a headband, a face mask, a you know, gloves, a ton of other stuff, calf. Uh, compression stocky and so i was i was layered up so i was pretty comfortable but some of these people were not wearing clothes I, I, did, I did the it is I've done the rock, they don't wear clothes most of the time <laughs> <laughs> i've done the rock and roll half marathon in nashville a couple of times and the most interesting person i saw running was a guy I happened to glance over he had no shirt on and it, it wasn't hot but it wasn't cold but i mean no shirt on, little tiny like gym shorts, and he was running barefoot. And he was running bare because there was kind of a, a movement there for a while, and maybe there yeah. still is that you don't shouldn't run with tennis shoes and blah blah blah. But you know, just if you ran and ran on glass or a nail or you know, I just can't imagine running yeah. thirteen miles on a road barefooted. That's crazy. But yeah. yeah. I looked over at one point and um on one side of me there was someone, you know, those inflatable costumes. <laughs> Somebody was wearing one of those. And then oh on the other side of me was Elvis. Ah, well, there you go. Then you know you're, you're in Vegas, Vegas, right? Yeah, there you that go. Was great. So yeah, as long as I don't have to stand up, I'm fine. But <laughs> it's a good thing we sit when we podcast. So you made it. You made it to work today, then, Carrie. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I was the doc of the day, so I was doing retrievals and IUIs and running around and doing all the things. Yeah, you kept your mind off of your legs. <laughs> True story. True story. At least I can bend down to pee, which is huge. That's good. That's always good. <laughs> all right. So, what questions do we have today, Susan? We are just keeping it real. All right. So <laughs> yeah. this is, this is our, un, it our, is uncensored for a reason, right? Exactly. All right. Here's our first one. Hello, I'm 40 years old with recurrent miscarriages. I'm overweight um, and have unexplained infertility issues. I had three failed IUIs a few years ago. In 2021, my husband and I decided to do IVF with the donor egg. I had a chemical pregnancy after transfer last year and then had fibroid removal surgery. I had another transfer in January 2023 and this time transferred two embryos. My transfer failed. I have one embryo left, but I'm nervous to try again and lose my last hope. Though the last two IVFs in my IUIs, I've always had a thin lining. Last time it was six, which is the thickest it's been. Could this contribute to my miscarriages and failed IUIs and IVFs, or is it my weight? I'm trying to lose weight and taking supplements now before I start again in the summer. Do you have any tips on what to try or testing to ask for? Thank you for your help. I wonder if her embryos have been genetically tested. That would be the one thing that I don't, because, you know, unfortunately, any of us, as we age, our eggs are just not as good as they would be previously. And, and just genetically, you know, about 
a significant percentage of your eggs will be genetically abnormal. I know these were donor eggs that you used and you had the biochemical pregnancy with but those. But at least half but of even, those are going to be abnormal. But even donor, yeah, even donors, half of them are going to be genetically abnormal. So, you know, I know you only have one embryo left, but it would be really nice to know if it were genetically normal. I don't know if you want to pay to have just one embryo tested, but, you know, if, that, if that's not normal, you're not going to probably be able to be pregnant with it. Yeah, I would, I would make sure that you've had like a, an evaluation for recurrent pregnancy loss, like antiphospholipid antibodies, prolactin, yep. TSH. We're using your partner's sperm. I would, if your embryos haven't been tested in the past, I would say have your husband's chromosomes tested um, because his sperm have been the consistent part through all of these. Um, I think it's probably reasonable. Well, you just said you had fibroid removal surgery. I'm assuming that was hysteroscopic. If it was not hysteroscopic, then I would recommend a hysteroscopy for the gold standard of looking inside your uterus, truly making sure it is a happy, healthy place for a baby. Or even if it was hysteroscopic, hysteroscopic. You may want to have a saline sonogram a month or two later just to make sure there's not any scar tissue left over. If it was, you know, if it was a fairly large fibroid and was impinging in your cavity um, mm -hmm. and they had to resect a significant amount of your endometrial lining, you may want to just double check and make sure there's not scar tissue left behind after that. I would also think about, um, so one thing is in testing the embryo, that's risky at this point because it means you have to thaw it, test it, freeze it, and then thaw it again for transfer. So you may opt to skip that at this stage because there is there's risk of losing it, even if it is a good embryo. Um, I would think about... But I would argue those risks are small because I know we do that pretty frequently. It's pretty... I mean, you're right. It could happen, but those risks are kind of small, though, I would think. Yeah, it just... It, I, it's more of a risk of having an abnormal embryo than something happening to your embryo in the rebiopsy. I don't know that that's true with a donor egg. She figured that aneuploidy rate is probably around 30%. You're not going to lose 30% of your embryos with a rebiopsy. That's true, but it's it's extra risk that you're exposing it to. It's one thing if there's a lot of mental distress, physical distress, all of that with that. Mm -hmm. That that can make it 100% worthwhile. But I don't know that... I don't think I would necessarily recommend biopsying. I mean, like if you wanted to biopsy it, I absolutely would. I wouldn't discourage yeah. you from doing it. But I probably wouldn't biopsy a single embryo. Yeah, uh, fin financially too, it would be expensive to do that. It would make, it make more a lot of sense, sense if you had other eggs and created more embryos and then biopsied yeah. them all together potentially. Yeah. yeah. Um, I would pay attention to what you're doing for weight loss. Um, there are some things that can be a little bit more detrimental. So for example, if you're in the middle of really massive weight loss, so for example, someone who's just had a uh, gastric bypass or bariatric surgery of some sort, that first year when you're shedding massive amounts of weight, your metabolism and your body environment is not, not particularly stable and not particularly normal. And so it's better to let that hold hold through. Um, there's difference between being slightly overweight and being extremely overweight um, with respect to insulin resistance and those types of things. So maybe take a look at how you're going about losing weight and you know look at your nutrition and exercise and getting professionals in there to help you. Because I don't know about Susan and Abby, but most of the nutritional information that I have has been self-educated. They don't teach us a whole heck of a lot about it in medical That's school. Right. 
They don't. So <laughs> working with nutritionists can be really valuable because that's what they live and breathe. And that's what they're passionate about. Um, and so thinking about that, some of the other testing that could potentially vary your transfer protocols. Um, I think Receptiva is a reasonable thing to do because it'll take a look and see, all right, do you need a different type of protocol before you start? Um, you know, data is reasonable for that. So I'd like to make a comment. She had said something about her lining being thin and, you know, the thickest she's ever gotten Mm -hmm. was six millimeters. So we all feel warm and fuzzy if your lining's like seven or eight millimeters. Okay. But we have all gotten people pregnant with those thinner linings. There's very good studies out there that tell us that we're worrying over nothing. And I, mm-hmm. I'm i personally a believer of more of the Delta than it is what yep. the actual end of end ends up being. If you are a person who starts off with a lining of two millimeters and you end up with a six millimeter trilaminar stripe that looks absolutely perfect, it's just thinner than the average person, that yeah. is probably your endometrium. And it is probably equivalent to somebody who you know, started out at five and ended up at eight. Yeah. All right. One more question. You want one more question and then we'll go? Yeah, let's do one more question. Okay, this is a good one. In the Valentine's Day episode, you mentioned that older unejaculated sperm could damage other sperm. Could you elaborate more on that? It's been so nice to not obsessively track sex and starting infertility treatment, but now I wonder if longer, quote, dry spells are having a detrimental (laughs) effect. Thank you so much. Susan, I think that was your factoid. You want to take that one? Yeah. So essentially what happens is those older sperm start to degrade and they release chemicals and free radicals. And those free radicals attack the good sperm so that the good sperm aren't as good as what they used to be. So um, yeah, generally... You say ejaculation is two to five days, roughly, right? Mm-hmm. So you right. Just say two, anything, yeah. anything seven days or longer really is mm-hmm. probably too long. So... Yeah. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have sex means that he can ejaculate on his own. There is no no obligation, um, at least from a general sense, that that has to be a group activity, particularly if you're in the midst of meds and you don't feel great and all of those things. Um, and so can definitely help help that way so that you don't have little mutant spermies. Yes. All right. So today we were going to talk about IUI because um, we just want to go through all of the basics of that, go through some of the statistics, go through the ways that you can go about it and um, and make sure that everybody's got that information as well. So who do you do IUIs on? Lots of people. <laughs> yeah, lots of people. I mean, the obvious person would be a guy with a, not a really low count, but sort of a borderline low count. And we typically look at the total modal sperm count, or at least that's what I typically do, which takes into consideration the count, the volume, and the motility. And you multiply those three numbers together and you come up with a number, usually over 10 million total is what we like to see, with 20 million being basically normal. And so any men that fall within that category are obvious guys that would potentially benefit or they as a couple would benefit from doing IUI. But certainly we do them on men that have normal counts too. So I have a question for you. So when you're talking about wanting to have 10 million total modal sperm, is that mm-hmm. pre-processing or post-processing for IUI? Pre-processing. Really? Mm-hmm. What do you do, Carrie? I like so to have I, 10 million after processing. I like to have as many as I can get after yeah, processing. Yeah, I like to have as many as I can The answer is as um, many as we can get. <laughs> <laughs> let's be clear. Greed is yes. definitely a factor here. Um, I like to have at least 5 million total mm-hmm. modal. It, like that 
Below that point is when I start to have more conversations with the patient of, hey, let's let's start to move over to IU uh, to IVF from mm-hmm. IUI. Um, but I'm looking for at least five million afterwards, and then I will happily take as many more as I can possibly get. Like we don't um, we don't tend to combine samples a whole heck of a lot mm-hmm. um, unless we are falling really short, but. Um, as many as I can get with a that minimum of five million total modal after processing, because the amount the number before processing doesn't make as much of a difference because there's so many variables in it. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're the ones that have really strong swimmers where there's a high percentage of them. So even if you have 10 million and you get 80%, you're in a good place. But if you have 10 million, you're only in 20% modal and you've got a low volume as well, that's less useful. So I like the post number. But let me be clear, though, what I'm really talking about is when I'm talking to a couple in the office and they're going, are we candidates to do IUI? And so, mm-hmm. you know, if the total modal count is really low at that point. If it's less than 10 million, I'm like, well, you know, I, I don't think you're going to do great. So that's really the number I'm looking at when I'm trying to counsel them in the office, not necessarily when I'm looking at what it's like after preparation. That's usually something that takes place when I may not even be in the room at that point. Mm-hmm. So, so another group of people that I recommend IUI to, and I'm sure you guys do too, are are those people who they are ovulatory. So the women are releasing an egg every month and we're really trying to maximize egg and sperm interaction. Um, I think we mentioned maybe on one of our previous episodes that we there's good data to say that if you are an ovulatory woman, just taking medications to, quote, help you ovulate, so things like Clomid or Letrozole, that just throwing those medicines at you really doesn't improve your chances of success very much. And really where we mm-hmm. start seeing those increased success rates that really matter is when we couple what we call super ovulation, so boosting your natural ovulation with insemination. Mm -hmm. The other group of people who can really benefit are people where, for example, they travel all the time and they have a hard time being together. Or I have a lot of shift workers where Mm -hmm. one of them works days, the other one works nights, and they just are not in the same room very often. And short of getting arrested because they're having sex in a car outside somebody's place of work, Mm -hmm. um, they don't really have great ways of, of physically getting together. And so we have a fair number of patients who do it for logistical reasons, because that's the only way that they can be together at the right day on the right time. Mm-hmm. And the other more obvious group are single women and same-sex couples, because they have to use donor sperm. So those are definitely couples that benefit from having IUI in the office as well. Mm-hmm. So is there, do you guys require testing before you do IUIs? We do. Yeah. What kind of testing do you require and why? So it kind of depends on the situation. Okay. Um, If we're kind of talking about the group I was talking about before that she's ovulatory and, you know, we're, we're trying to maximize egg and sperm interaction. One, we require that the guy has had at least one semen analysis in the past because we want to make sure that he's actually a good candidate for mm-hmm. IUI and has sperm because most guys assume they have sperm. <laughs> and, yeah. And they would all, you know, be like, yes, we can just go forward with that. And I'm like, ah, but if we've gone through all this, we need to know if we're probably going to have something that day. So that that's the one big thing. Um, I generally do ovarian reserve testing 
on my mm -hmm. ladies to make sure that there is not some hidden ovarian reserve issue that we're unaware of. I mean, we know that people in their, you know, upper 30s and 40s are are often going to have ovarian reserve issues, but sometimes when they come to see a reproductive endocrinologist, we can have somebody in their 20s or young 30s that have issues. Um and then kind of the end of the trifecta is making sure that they have um uh, the lady open has tubes. open tubes. Yes. Yeah. Because if your tubes are blocked, we can put as much sperm as we want to in your lovely uterus, but they are not going to get to the egg. And if they yeah, do, I, a, lot a lot of times, times they made it in, in bad places. I don't require tube testing, but I mention it and I mention why it might be beneficial because not everybody wants to jump right in and do that. But generally, those are the big things. AMH, sperm test, and HSG, typically that I like to do ahead of time. And then, of course, for couples who are using donated sperm, you know, the FDA requires, we have there's specific guidelines that we have. We have to do infectious disease testing on both the patient and also her partner, whether it's the same-sex partner, male partner, whoever. We need to do um, infectious disease testing, things like HIV, hepatitis B, hepatitis C, um, those sorts of things, CMB. And and realize that your doctor and the lab that they work with um, in coordination with each other, sometimes the lab requires certain testing. So like our lab requires our, us to have infectious disease testing on both partners um, hmm. before doing IUIs. And so, you know, sometimes mm -hmm. we do it because there's there's a lot of um, reasons specifically for your fertility. And sometimes there's precautionary things that certain labs require. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, too, if we see that there's more than a million cells, um, a lot of times we'll send that, we'll reflex that and do a sperm culture just to make sure there's not some sort of germ growing within the seminal plasma that may be harming, you know, the, the sperm and, and preventing it from getting to the egg. Mm -hmm. What kind of counseling do you guys do with your patients ahead of time? That's kind of the, this is the precautionary what if counseling. So for example, for me, when I have guys who have what I think might be a borderline final total modal count. Like if I've got someone who's got 10 million sperm and there's a 50% motility, you figure the final total modal count is going to be right around 5 million. That's mm -hmm. that's kind of our cutoff. And so I always give the precautionary counseling of, all right, depending on what kind of a day we're having, like we have no idea if this particular 10 million count was at the high end meaning you might be low later, or if it was at the low end, meaning you might be higher and totally clear later. And so I will oftentimes in those cases give a precautionary, hey, we might get to that day and we might not necessarily have have enough. And so if that happens, we're going to do this, that, and the other thing. Like usually go on and do it, may have you recollect again, mm -hmm. those types of things. So what other precautionary counseling do you guys give with IUIs? So kind of along that, so um, unlike the two of you who are pretty close to where you can freeze sperm, the location for me that I can freeze sperm is about mm, 40 minutes from my primary mm. office and about three hours from my secondary office. Yeah. And so what I have started doing a couple years ago, there was a really good study that came out that essentially talked about the timing of IUIs. And it was essentially, if you trigger somebody, so we give you a trigger, a woman a trigger shot, and we do the IUI at 12, 24, 48, 36 hours, is there a difference in success rates? And it essentially said that it didn't. And so what I will sometimes do on people that have those borderline semen analyses and they, they're like, we really, you know, for whatever reason, we, we don't want to do IVF. We really want to see what we can do. 
is I will do a back-to-back IUI and do do trigger and then IUI at 24 hours and then at 36 hours um, to kind of increase that sperm exposure that's there. The sperm that ends up inside the uterus actually survives for up to mm, somewhere around 72 hours. So Mm -hmm. that's the reason probably that the study showed us that it really doesn't matter when we put it in. And if I can kind of stack sperm, I used to sometimes do like cryo backup, but when we freeze sperm, we usually lose about half Damn. of it. Yeah, and if I'm already out. doing it on somebody who has a low low yeah. sperm count, I was kind of like, this doesn't make any sense. But having somebody come back for two days, especially if they're local, sometimes even if they're remote and they're trying to avoid the cost of IVF, a hotel room is a whole lot less expensive than an IVF <laughs> cycle. Yeah. Okay. And then when you were doing IUIs, how do you work that cycle? What meds do you order? What monitoring do you do? So we typically, I usually pair it with ovulation induction medication, usually letrozole slash Femara, sometimes Clomid, depending on the patient and side effects they have with with those medicines. Um, They do that for five days. Um, I usually bring them in around, it depends a little bit on their cycle, but usually around day 13 or 14 for monitoring. By that, I mean we do a vaginal probe ultrasound. We're able, we can't see the egg itself because the egg is microscopic, but we can see the fluid-filled sac, the corpus luteum or the follicular cyst around the egg, and we measure that. And based on the size of the follicular cyst, we make a decision, you know, do we think the egg is ready? Do we think the egg is mature? If so, we trigger them usually with a shot of HCG or something like Ovidril or Novaril. Um, There's different names for those drugs, but we trigger that them. And then about 24 to 36 hours, we'll have the um, male partner come in, collect, and about an hour and a half later, the sperm will be prepared. So we wash the sperm, remove the seminal plasma, concentrate it into a small volume. And then at that point, the the patient comes into the office and and has her IUI procedure. Oh, go ahead, Susan. Oh, I was just going to add, you know, another interesting fact. So a lot of times people get really worried about um, kind of timeframes. Okay. And so the biggest time frame when we're talking about IUIs <laughs> is how fast does that sperm have to get from him into the hands of the andrologist and then into the hands from the andrologist into his partner's uterus. Okay. So there, there is um, the old adage is generally from the time of ejaculation, it needs to be at your clinic within an hour. Okay. Mm-hmm. If you are collecting at home, it does and not don't put be... it on ice. Don't freeze it. Don't don't put it on ice on the don't way there. Don't put it on ice. <laughs> don't put it in front of the air conditioner, but also don't put it on the hot Texas seat. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> like avoid Body temperature. But you have you have an hour. Okay. Um if you live in a location that that hour is not feasible, there are new collection cups um, mm-hmm. called yeah. Protex cups. We use them for my patients who are driving in for three hours. Oh, um, they're, a little, they're a little additional charge, um, but they they can collect there and it actually keeps the sperm for over six hours and considering really? we're only three hours away. Yeah, wow. so Didn't that also that. can work for your shift workers. So he needs to collect and it doesn't work Uh with her schedule. It works out really well. Um, But where I was really going with this is (laughs) that once the sperm is prepared by the andrologist, it can actually sit there for about 12 hours. Mm -hmm. In the incubator, yeah. Obviously, we want it 
timed with that trigger shot and things like that. But, you know, sometimes we have patients who they're like, oh my goodness, I took my trigger shot and y'all are 15 minutes late for my appointment. Yeah. This is not going to work. And it, and it's like, it's it's okay. And, and we yes. really mm-hmm. want to um, get you taken care of as quickly as possible and have every little percentage point. But know that this is one time that we do have a little bit of wiggle room. Um, when a woman ovulates, that egg is actually good for 12 hours. So on the negative side is it's only good for 12 hours. So when you're trying to conceive on your own, that's a lot of the reason we like to do the trigger shot because we want to know when that 12-hour window starts and stops. But what that also says is that if you're driving into your IUI and y'all, he's going to collect in the office and you get a flat tire, it is okay. (laughs) It is okay. You can call the office, let them know what happened. They're going to work with you. It is okay. That's right. What are the the risks of IUI, if any? Well, there's a small risk of infection. So, you know, we try and make sure the sperm, that's one of the reasons why we check if there's a, if, if there's an elevated cell count, we're worried about an infection. We will not do inseminations. We'll send it out for culture. And just unfortunately, we won't, we don't want to do the insemination because if, if there's an infection in the seminal plasma and the sperm, we're worried that we could introduce that up into the uterine cavity and cause an infection. The other thing that we see much more commonly, but it's not very common is sometimes some women are really sensitive to the seminal plasma. And so sometimes if you get a little bit of extra that in there, or if they're just really sensitive, sometimes they can have a lot of cramping and discomfort from it. And so in those particular patients, if we know somebody's overly sensitive, sometimes we'll even do a double wash on the specimen to really try and get rid of as much of the seminal plasma as we can so that they won't have those after effects of cramping and pain. Mm-hmm. So I was being a little facetious when I said pregnancy, but probably one of the biggest risks that we are all concerned about is is multiple pregnancy um, with inseminations. Because like we talked about, a lot of the times when you're doing inseminations, you are taking medications that can boost your ovulation. And if you're ovulating more than one egg, even if you do ovulate only one egg, it is possible. But we're usually talking about these multiple follicles growing and that type of thing. And so your risk of multiples with IUI, depending on what type of medications you take, are actually higher than if you did IVF, because Mm -hmm. most IVF places, you're going to probably be doing a single embryo transfer, ideally with a chromosomally normal embryo nowadays. Whereas, you know, if you have two or three follicles, it's a a very reasonable thing to trigger you and and try for IUI. Now, realistic risks, okay? Um, I kind of break it down this way and I'd love to hear what you guys say. If you are using clone um, or letrozole itself with no additional injectables excluding Ovidrill, risk of multiples are probably about 7 to 8%. Um, mm. I do a lot of combo cycles with letrozole and some Minipure, and I would say that risk is probably about 10%. If you are doing pure injectable medications... <laughs> That's when your risks really start increasing. And that's yeah. probably somewhere between 20 to 30%. A lot of that's going to depend on age. Okay. Um, I don't typically use pure injectables on people less than 38 anymore. Um, if I can get them to ovulate with something less than that. Mm-hmm. Um, but but realistically, probably the the biggest risk you have with IUIs is kind of what happens when egg and sperm get together. Yeah. Yeah. 
ectopic pregnancy being one of the scariest things. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's scary when you get pregnant with multiple kids. It's also scary when you get pregnant in a place that the pregnancy just can't grow because mm-hmm. the one thing that IUIs depend on 100% to work on their own without any interference from us is the tubes. So mm-hmm. we can we can help the eggs to grow. We can help them come out. We can help the sperm in the right spot, but we can't guarantee that they're going to make that journey through the tube the way that they should. So if something gets stuck in there, then that's more problematic. Um, the other thing that a lot of patients want to do with an IUI is they say, well, I want you to test my embryo before, before it implants. And we can't do that because the embryo is completely contained within your body. It's within the tube and then it floats into the uterus. So there's no way we can get in there and get that biopsy to know more about it. And so if you feel strongly about male or female, avoiding downs, avoiding any of the other genetic abnormalities, then there's really not a whole lot extra we can do with an IUI cycle because we're, mm-hmm. you know, it's we're at the mercy of your body. It's just that's how the timing works and the placement works. And I think one of the biggest things for people to understand about IUI is, you know, we are we are raising you closer to your natural fertility rates as much as we can, okay? Mm-hmm. So generally speaking, if you have been having unprotected intercourse or, quote, trying to conceive, which just means you're having sex, it doesn't mean you had any <laughs> intention, okay? If you have been having unprotected intercourse for a year and have not been successful, your chances of conceiving on your own without any treatments are generally going to be about 1% to 2% per month, okay? Mm -hmm. And depending on age kind of depends on what your percentage points were beforehand. But even when you're in your 20s, the maximum that's going to be is about 25%. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think of, you know, IUIs in doing super ovulation or ovulation induction for ladies who don't ovulate um, as kind of getting as close to those natural fertility rates. And unfortunately for humans, we are very inefficient at this whole baby making yeah. thing. Okay. And so, you know, understanding that you know, if when we're sitting here talking about a 10 or maybe 15% chance of pregnancy per cycle, um, that that's, that's kind of what humans do. But also know that your best chances are in the first few cycles. Okay. Mm-hmm. Just like everything else with getting pregnant, if it's going to happen, it's generally going to happen pretty quickly. So, you know, most people nowadays, at least in my practice, I don't do a whole lot of IUIs beyond maybe three or four. Um, you know, kind of depending on what their, what, what somebody's individual goals are and things like that. And, and also know that, you know, the days of that you had to do lesser before greater, meaning doing IUIs before doing IVF, you know, that that's not always a rule. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so, um, there's a lot more leeway when it comes to going directly to what you are most comfortable with than there was even 10 years ago. Right. So that that's something important to think about when you're when you're talking about the the pros and cons. Perfect. That was a very good summation, Susan. I agree. Because you know, when you tell people that, oh yeah, maybe when we do this, you'll have an eight to ten percent chance per month, they kind of look at you like, What? Only eight to ten percent? But you're right, it really gets people up to about what their baseline would normally be for their age. 
Yeah. So um, I think that's a good analogy. Yeah. It's a good, good starter process, but it's helpful to go into it knowing what it can and can't do because right. one, of, one of probably the biggest frustrations that people have with it is just the pure frustration factor of, well, I did the meds and my, I had an egg and it, I ovulated and the sperm was there. So why didn't this work? Yeah. Because the inherent success rates are lower. You didn't do anything wrong. So, um, all right. Perfect. Well, thank you, ladies. Um, and to our audience, we thank you for listening. Be sure to tune in next week for more. Be sure to subscribe, leave us a review in Apple Podcasts. We would love to hear from you. We're on Instagram and Facebook and YouTube. So hop on by, leave us a like or a follow. Uh, please subscribe to YouTube and say hello to us. You can also visit us on fertility.sensensor.com to submit specific questions. All questions will be answered on the podcast for the Ask the Doc segment. We would also love to hear episode ideas. Um, so let us know what you're thinking. As always, this podcast is intended for entertainment and is not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. We'll see you soon. Bye. Bye. This podcast is also brought to you by Fertility Pharmacy of America. Fertility Pharmacy of America is a fertility dedicated pharmacy that partners with physicians across the country in order to provide patients with a more personalized pharmacy experience. Pride ourselves on ensuring that every prescription is accurate, delivered in a timely manner, and most importantly, affordable for all patients. A team of trained pharmacists, technicians, and customer service representatives will be with you every step of the way, providing you with knowledge and exceptional quality care for all of your fertility medication needs. More than just a specialty pharmacy, they're a committed partner during your fertility journey. Fertility Pharmacy of America, making miracles happen every day. Please text or call us at 844-449-8767 and reference Fertility Docs Uncensored.